Amen. Thank you, Ilya and Marcy. And good morning. Let me invite you all to open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's page 992 in a Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along with us there. After seeing all those kids file out each week, I'm always pleasantly encouraged that there's still people here afterwards. Um, and that there, there was more than just the, the kids here. But uh, praise God for how many are uh, going down there and as they uh, also dive into the New Testament, just like we are now. Well, on April 15th, that's two weeks ago, um, a man named George Verwer passed away. And he was 84 years old. I imagine a few of you know the name. Maybe some of you vaguely know it rings a bell. I suspect most of you maybe don't know about George Verwer. Uh, but he was the founder of a missions organization called Organization, no, excuse me, Operation Mobilization, or OM for short, and he founded it back in the 1960s. Today, OM is a global sending organization with 6,800 missionaries in 118 nations. And as a missions organization, they are committed to mission work, to uh, making known the name of Jesus Christ. They're also very much known, more so than other organizations, for their humanitarian work. Um, focusing especially on unreached people groups and those who are under-resourced throughout the world. Verwer himself wrote books that have sold and uh, distributed over a million copies worldwide. So as you might expect, when George Verwer passed away, major publications like Christianity Today and others did pretty lengthy pieces about him because of the impact that he's had in the kingdom of God and the legacy that he leaves behind. Well, George, Ver George Verwer was a Jersey kid. A Bergen County kid, grew up in Wyckoff, New Jersey, and went to Ramsey High School in the 1950s. I guess at that time, those uh, residents in Wyckoff fed into the Ramsey school system, um, raised in a very nominal Christian home, never really connected to his faith growing up, or didn't seem like his family did either. Uh, by the time he got to early high school, Verwer was a good athlete, um, but couldn't stay out of trouble. And what started as kind of boyish immaturity led into, like, really devolving into crime. Uh, breaking into people's homes on at least one occasion, getting caught by the police. And so George grew a reputation in the neighborhood and the school. He was a troubled kid. He was the kind of kid that other parents warned their kids about and hanging around. The kind of kid that gets judged, marked off, uh, tagged, a, a troubled kid. And then at age 14, God did a work that seemingly no one expected, including George himself. He had an encounter with the living God. George put his faith in Jesus Christ. And from there, from the start, at age 14, he would pursue a life to make this same Christ known, starting first in his school and certainly his neighborhood, and then putting a fuel for mission in his heart to make disciples of all nations to the literal ends of the earth. And at one point, when he was you know, already kind of well-known, George was asked for his, what's his hope for the church? George, what's your hope for the church, particularly in the U.S. and in the West, um, that seems to become increasingly post-Christian, where the desire for missions or missions work or just making Christ known anywhere, let alone to the ends of the earth, has seemed to dim? And he was asked this question, pretty big question. Uh, he said simply this, and the quote will be on the screen. If only we could see the value of one soul like God does. 
Sometimes the best answers require the least amount of words. What would it look like if an entire church saw the value of souls made in the image of God like God does? Well, we're continuing this morning in our First Timothy series, and we're going to look at a relatively short passage this morning, chapter 4, just verses 6 through 10. And I think what we're going to find in this passage is one of the answers to, um, like the, uh, to the question, well, what is Paul actually after in this letter? Like, why did he sit down and write a letter to Timothy? What, what's he really after? What, what is his hope for the church, you could say? Why has he so passionately been telling Timothy about the structure of the church and the leadership of the church and really nuanced, kind of thick-meaning passages? What, what's the purpose here? I think we're going to find a pretty big answer this morning. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Again, I think this short passage reveals the heartbeat behind the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. And here's the pulse of the letter that is still pumping 2,000 years later. That God uses the ministry of the local church to work in his people and grow them in godliness so that he can work through his people to make his name known to all people. Do you see it? He's, he's working in the church, working in his people, and then working through his people to reach all people. And I want to see how the, show you how these dots are connected in just, again, a few verses which is Paul's hope for Ephesus, starting with number one. That the church in Ephesus, and that we, Grace Church, would be the rooted church. The rooted church. Paul says in verse six, if you put these things before the brothers, brothers being there, a Greek word that encompasses the church. It's a single word that includes brothers and sisters. So it's as if Paul is saying, if you put these things before the church, Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Well, what are these things? Broadly speaking, everything that Paul has written up to this point. These things are the structure and the processes for selecting good leaders. These things are a message in a culture that is rooted in grace. God's grace, his gospel of grace, who sent his one and only son to restore and redeem sinners. Paul said in chapter 1, of which I am the foremost. You remember that? He says, he goes, guys, if he can save me, he wrote, even me. He can save anyone. This is the power of grace. These things are a warning about those who are putting forth false teaching in the church and rooting them out, which we saw last week. Those false teachers that are infiltrating the church like a Trojan horse. People who claim to be believers, they claim to be mature teachers, and yet are teaching nonsense that mean nothing and lead people nowhere. Broadly speaking, these things is everything. Narrowly speaking, 
Paul is referring to what he wrote immediately before this in verse 5, which we left off at last week. That everything God created and God's design for all things is good. His design is good. It's not to be rejected, but received with thanksgiving. So, Timothy, if you put these things before the church, you will be the kind of servant leader that the church needs. Grounding them, rooting them in the truth and in the sound doctrine that will help the church look more like Jesus. So, so he, here, here's a good litmus test for how effective a leader in the church is. If you want to say, how can you tell if a leader in the church or if a leadership of a church is effective? This is a good reminder for me, certainly, for the leaders in the church. Don't just look at the numbers. Don't just focus on any growth, if there is growth, or declining numbers, if things are declining. Don't just look at a leader's social media following. How popular do they seem? A good leader in the church can be determined by the godliness of the members. A good leader in the church can be determined by the godliness of the members. This is Paul's desire for the church at Ephesus. Godliness. The word godliness is uh, found 15 times in the New Testament. Nine of those 15 are in this short letter. Like, according to his letter, if sound doctrine is to be found in a church's teaching, and daily gratitude is to be modeled and practiced by its leaders, then the church will grow in godliness. The church won't be perfect. The church will be welcome for all those and wherever their background is to encounter the love of Christ. But over time, you see an increasing godliness in its members. Because they are rooted in the truth of God's word. And when the gospel of grace is preached... And the work of sanctification and growth occurs in us over time. We look more like Jesus. We, we, we say this all the time at Grace, that one of our hopes for this church is that if you were to plant yourself here, that one year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, you won't be perfect. Believe me. But you'll be able to look back and say, by God's grace, I look more like Jesus because of my involvement in this church. And others in this church look more like Jesus because of what I'm also bringing to this church. It's not just the leaders. It's everybody working building up together. The Bible says in real early on, chapter 1, that all of us were made in God's image. We are image bearers. And when sin entered the world and introduced a massive distortion into the creative order, all people inherited and is born with what is called a sin nature. Nobody escapes it. And what happens with a sin nature is that as a result, the divine image imprinted on us was altered in a way analogous to a cracked mirror. Think about a cracked mirror with me. A cracked mirror is still a mirror, but it fails now to consistently or properly express the likeness of the object it's supposed to reflect. In the same way, because of sin, because of seeking our own glory instead of God's glory, People made in God's image can no longer consistently or fully express and reflect the likeness of our creator being God himself. And as we know, a cracked mirror can't fix itself. If you have a cracked mirror, you can't hope you wake up one day and it's all of a sudden going to be fixed. So too, a person distorted by sin cannot heal himself or herself. This is a problem. This is our need for the gospel. 
So when that gospel of grace is rightly taught and the good news of the gospel proclaims that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what it proclaims is that the ruptures of sin will be healed in us, that the mirror will be restored in us, and our full humanity is now brought back to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. You are truly human in the way you've been created to live when you place your faith in Christ. And we are given a new nature. Our sin nature has been defeated. We are given a new nature that is now capable of living in accordance with the creational intent to reflect our creator. And when you're rooted in truth, you can grow in godliness. Paul's hope is that we would be a rooted church. Well, you might naturally ask, how does that happen? So you put your faith in Jesus. Is this what happens? That you wake up the next day and all of a sudden, boom, godly. Super godly the day after. Is that how this works? No. Which leads to number two. Paul's hope for the church is that we would be the training church. The training church. The clearest exhortation in this letter comes in verse 7. I don't think he could say it any clearer than this. Look at your Bibles, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Rooted in truth, training in practice. This is the church, rooted in truth, training in practice. Um, why does Paul use the word train here? Why is this the word picture he's given his church? Uh, it's a Greek word. It's a word that was and is very familiar in Greek culture at the time because it's most closely related to the Greek Olympic Games, which began 700 years beforehand, incredibly. The Olympic Games, starting about 700, 6700 BC, has this root word of train, training athletes. It's the same root word that we derived in English our words gymnasium and gymnastics from. And so Paul is doing the work that all believers should do. It's the work of contextualization. It's taking the gospel message and saying it in a way that's going to make sense to the people he's writing to. And historians have somewhat recently found even more evidence that Ephesus in particular... The city of Ephesus was known as an athletic city. Ephesus had athletes. Ephesus was a city that people around the Roman Empire would go to to train for the Roman Olympics or for the, for the Olympics. So they would understand that when Paul is writing this word, that when he uses that word train, he's conveying hard work. They knew how hard their athletes worked. He's conveying a relentless pursuit an all-consuming mentality. So those of you in here this morning, or maybe those who are listening, who you yourself have been a high-level athlete, um, or those of you who have a personal connection with a, what we would consider a high-level athlete, maybe you played D1 in college, maybe you played professionally, maybe you have been in the Olympic Games or know someone, have had a close connection with someone who does, Maybe you're a high schooler who is so invested now, hoping to get to that quote-unquote high level. You want to play in college, you want to go pro. You know that high-level athletes do not have a casual relationship with their sport. You cannot be considered high-level and have just a casual relationship with your sport. If they are going to succeed, or if they have succeeded, it's because everything revolved around their relentless pursuit of that sport. And while Paul's talking about sports here, I think we can understand that. We also know this goes beyond sports, right? Like to be a high-level expert anything in any field, 
all right, whether it be a Broadway actor or a financial advisor or a school administrator, it takes a relentless pursuit to be an expert in your field. Um, some of you know and probably read the book by Malcolm Gladwell, who popularized the fact that studies show it takes 10,000 hours of intensive practice to master a complex, a complex skill. It takes 10,000 hours to go from an amateur to mastering a complex skill, whether it be playing the violin like Marcy or computer programming. And Paul says, listen, bodily training, it has some value. He doesn't say it's worthless. He says, he says it has value. And, and so I just want to pause here because it's worth noting here, even in passing, the Bible is not silent on how we should care for our bodies. Right? Like that's not the point here, but it's a point that the word goes as far as to say elsewhere that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty like high bar that the Bible kind of conveys about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. So plainly put, like we should pay attention to our bodies. Bodily training has some value. We have a calling to steward how active we are with them, what kind of food and liquids we put in them. So we can talk about the emotional benefits to exercise and nutritious diets. We can talk about how God calls us to be active for our good and for the good of the people around us and for our families, the collateral benefit of you taking care of your body. We can talk about blood flow and endorphins and getting enough sleep and the value it has. We could also talk about how this speaks to how we should care for other people's bodies. We should protect those who are prone to abuse. Advocate for those who are oppressed. Provide for those who are under-resourced or malnourished. We can talk about that. We should talk about that. So Paul's point is not that bodily training does not have value, but here's his point. It's not of equal value to training for godliness. It has some value, but it's not of equal value of training for godliness. And I think we can, in a very high-achieving area of the country that we are in, struggle to apply that mentality of relentless pursuit to our Christian lives. To commit ourselves, and even use that phrasing, a relentless pursuit of godliness in your life. Can you say that describes you? To, to be godly is to be Christ-centered in all we do. To, to, to pick any area of your life and to be able to say and connect the dots, here's how my relationship with Jesus Christ and what he has done for me impacts and shapes the way I do blank. And you should be able to go through all the areas of your life, and we're not doing it perfectly, and some are going to struggle more than others, but we should be able to connect the dots or have a desire to. And, and Paul is being careful here, but he's being carefully clear. Do you remember last week in the previous passage that he was condemning the false teaching of aestheticism, which was harming the church. Aestheticism was the act of self-denial for the purpose of gaining a higher spiritual plane. Denying the body in order to uplift the soul. Paul is saying, church, the problem is not discipline, but legalism. Hang with me. It's not discipline, that's the problem. Legalism is the problem, and knowing the difference makes all the difference. And so I want to put these two definitions on the screen behind me. Knowing the difference means all the difference. Legalism is self-centered behavior that makes much of us to gain love from God. Self-centered behavior that makes much of us to gain love from God. Discipline 
is God-centered behavior that makes much of him to display love for God. Knowing the difference makes all the difference. And so Paul is saying Christians have incentive to train hard for godliness with discipline. Um, we often say around here, we, we often talk about our staff and our ministry leaders, we, we affirm and encourage one another that Christians ought to be the hardest workers. Christians ought to be the hardest workers in the world, in all of life, to be the most disciplined because our fuel is God's grace and our motivation is God's glory. And others do not have that fuel or that motivation. In 1 Corinthians 15, another letter that Paul wrote to another city, Paul is talking about his approach to work. How do you balance this? God's grace, but then our work. Can, that can be hard to kind of balance. I think Paul puts it pretty well in 1 Corinthians 15. His work is to be a missionary in ministry, and here's how he balances it or thinks about it. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Look at this. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's a tightrope to walk. It is God's grace which fuels me. And so I work and I train. And it's the God's grace that is, again, within me. All right, well, what does training for godliness look like? Well, let's carry this illustration further with Paul. A bodily training, you could say, broad strokes, includes a healthy diet and, and uh, physical exercise, right? A, a healthy diet and physical exercise. So godly training includes a healthy spiritual diet and spiritual exercise. A healthy spiritual diet rejects the junk food and feasts on the good nutrition, Look at verse 7 again. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Reject the junk. Feast on the good nutrition. Building off of verse 6, when he had just said, they are trained in the words of the good doctrine you have followed. Guys, every single day, and wherever God calls you to in your life, in the mission fields that God calls you to locally, we are presented with and exposed to godless, irreverent worldviews every day. You can't escape them. They're all around you, and they are available for consumption. Just like junk food that destroys our bodies and are available for consumption. These, uh, what Paul calls, silly worldviews and false teaching will destroy our souls. So we choose we work by the grace of God in us to have nothing to do with them. He's pretty clear here. We're exposed to them. But you don't have to be consumed by them. It is simply a waste of time in the limited time we have to consume godless worldviews. It's a waste of energy to be distracted by them when they provide no value to our lives. And so if you want some application this week, can I offer you to do this along with me? Is it time for a media checkup this week? Is it time for a media checkup? What are you consumed by? Uh, have you ever done a time audit of your week? 
I mean, sometimes the iPhone's doing it for you now, and that's humbling, all right? Your amount of screen time that you get that notification every week. I tried to toggle that one off as fast as I could when those updates came. But the podcasts and social media and TV and books and gossip, and the problem's not media. It's our propensity to be consumed. Where is your best energy going day in and day out? You can do a time audit this week. So reject the junk and feast on good nutrition. Feast on sound doctrine, on that which builds up, that which makes you stronger, that which stirs your affections for Christ. Paul says in another letter, he wrote to another church, uh, what, whatever's true, whatever's good, whatever's noble, he says, think on these things. Be consumed by them. You know, we're in the middle of a class that we offer every year called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Uh, it's either the sixth or seventh year that we're offering it. And in total, over 200 people at Grace Church have taken this course. And the reason why we do it every year and the reason why the registrations are high is that we at Grace don't just want to tell you what's in the Bible. Come listen to me, I'll tell you what's in the Bible. That's not our approach. But we want to equip people on how to understand their Bible. We don't just want to give you a meal. We want to teach you how to cook. And that's one way that we do it. Author Jerry Bridges says this, and they'll be on the screen. He says this about God's word, feasting on good nutrition. He says, God's word must be so strongly fixed in our minds that it becomes the dominant influence of our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. One of the most effective ways of influencing our minds is through memorizing scripture. David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Can I briefly say a word to those... Um, Maybe in elementary school, middle school, or high school, they're still in the room this morning. Uh, I, I, like you, grew up in the church. Um, I, I was familiar with the word. I could tell you where to find books, Bible, sword, drill, I'm in, all right? I'm coming in first or second. Those of you who don't know what it is, I'm sorry, all right? <laughs> Google it. Um, I could recount the major stories. I, I, I could, again, due to a solid church and solid family, could, could explain the gospel. But in practice, I didn't feast on this. I, I never really read it deeply on my own or thought I could or really wanted to. And I got to college and I realized I had a superficial relationship with it. And that's one of the reasons why I think I had a rough first couple years at college. Really leaning deeply into the desires of the flesh. And it wasn't until... In my junior year, when God turned my life around, which is a longer story, that I began to read it. One of the things I can look back on and say, I began to read it, I began to feast on it. And I remember being so um, overjoyed that, like, what's in here, at the same time being grieved, like, why did I do this before? Well, why wasn't I doing this? Like, it's all here. Like, it's, it's all here. And so, students, I know in life, whether or not you'd want to admit it, there, there's a fear of getting behind a fear of missing out and not consuming things that everybody else is consuming. I know that's hard. But please hear me. Reject the junk. Feast on truth. And you'll find that you're actually ahead in the end. A healthy spiritual diet and then engaging in hard training in the spiritual disciplines. And I'll move quickly here before we go to our final point. Um, if, if I had to list out uh, the spiritual disciplines, and for the, some of you this is review. For some of you maybe haven't thought about this. Or what are rhythms in your life, disciplines that you can engage in, cultivate time for, that will help you grow in godliness. 
So here's a list. This is not an exact list. This is not the full list. This is a list. A Bible intake and prayer and worship, both corporate and personal. Evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, learning. These are the exercises that will make you strong. This is the training in godliness. And so at the next slide, I have uh, three books. Maybe note them down, take a quick picture. If you want to learn more about the spiritual disciplines and how you can incorporate them in your life, here's three books. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. He's got several books um, around this. Uh, one of his books is called Spiritual Disciplines for the Overwhelmed and Busy. Hello, Bergen County. All right, so maybe go to that one. And then Spiritual Disciplines Handbook by Adele Calhoun and Sacred Rhythms, Arranging Our Lives for Spiritual Transformation by Ruth Haley Barton. Maybe an encouragement, maybe pick one up and say in the next three months I want to read it. Put it on your nightstand. Buy one for someone else and read it together. But why? Here's how we'll finish. Why does a relentless pursuit of Jesus Christ matter? Well, Paul says first, it holds promise for the present life. It has value for the present life and also for the life to come. Eternal life. That's a pretty big reason. But it's not just for you. That when you train for godliness, it's also for others. Which leads to number three in Paul's hope for Ephesus and hope for us. Is that we would be the sending church. The sending church. Verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Few verses, but it's incredible what Paul just did. And so let's connect the dots. I said it at the beginning, but here's what he's saying in these verses. That God uses the ministry of the local church to work in his people and grow them in godliness. So that he can work through his people to make his name known to who? All people. It is in awe of God, in awe of God, A-W-E, awe of God that fuels action for God. He works in you and stirs your affections for him. And then he works through you for his glory and for the nations. He zooms in on the church. You are to be rooted here. And then he zooms out to the world. You are to be sent there. Church, this is what we train for. This is why we're here. Not just to look good in the spiritual mirror, but to use this gift of faith that we've been given, this anchored hope in the living God, not the dead God, you see that? The living God, not the dead God, not the dying God, not the absent God, but the living God. And we proclaim that he is the Savior to all people. And Paul writes, especially to those who believe. Uh, another translation of that phrase can be, in other words, those who believe. He's a savior to those who believe in Jesus Christ and put their faith in him. And so we see our lives as a means to grow in godliness so that we can be used by God to make his name known to all people and call people to believe on the name of Jesus and be saved. In our vision series we did last fall we called Future Grace, uh, we rolled out our spiritual formation pathway at this church that can be summed up in four words. Gather, grow, give, and go. Gather, grow, give, and go. 
And so let me ask simply, Grace Church, what does your go look like? What does your go look like? Will you commit to train for godliness here? And if so, what are you going to do with your godliness? What does your go look like? For some of you, especially for those who are younger, again, students, young adults, I'll tell you what I'm praying for, what our church often prays for, is that some of you will answer the call to go into missions and go to the nations. George Verwer was a Jersey kid, 14 years old, when God saved him from a life of trouble and put a singular inflamed desire in his heart that would not be put out. Have you considered that God might be calling you to the nations? Why not you? It's often young people, but it's also not always young people. Uh, Pastor Ben mentioned in his prayer that next Sunday, May 7th, at both of our services, we're going to be introducing a family to you that we've just brought on as a new missions partner and play a part in commissioning them to the Middle East. In 2018, this husband and wife were sitting in the pew in their 30s. They were hearing a talk about unreached people groups. He was a commercial banker. She was home raising a young, growing family. And they looked at each other during that talk, and they knew God's calling them out. And they put them on a path where now five years later, they're going to join a team of missionaries in the Middle East with five children, age 11 and younger, to plant churches. That might be your go. But I know it won't be everyone's go. I want to finish with a key piece of George Verwer's story that I left out. Whenever, whenever, one, start again, whenever anyone asked about his testimony, he talked about a woman named Dorothea Clapp. And you can go right on Operation Mobilization's website, which talks about their founder, and he shares the story of Dorothea Clapp there on the website. Dorothea Clapp lived by Ramsey High School. And God put it on her heart to begin praying for the students every afternoon as school got out. That God would touch the world through the lives of young people. Day after day she prayed. Year after year she prayed. And there were times where she would start to zero in on the spirit would put on her heart to start praying for individual students. And she began to pray for one boy in particular. The boy she heard from the other moms was the troubled kid. While other parents warned their kids about this boy to stay away from him, Dorothea prayed for him and encouraged her son to draw near to him. Mrs. Clapp gave a copy of a tract that contained the Gospel of John, went to her son and asked her to give it to this boy. As I'm sure is obvious, this troubled boy's name was George Verwer. And George said God used this tract. And Mrs. Clapp's prayers to awaken him to the gospel against all odds that he would soon place his faith in Jesus Christ and be set on a path to be used by God to go to the nations. Whereas we stand today, in 2023, there are 6,800 missionaries in 118 countries because of the organization that George began. Dorothea Clapp, along with her husband Robert, were charter members of a new church in the area that began a few years earlier. What was the name of the church? Grace Church of Ridgewood. She sat in this church. 
She was part of this faith community that trained her for godliness. And Mrs. Clapp's go, her go, looked like sitting in her house, looking out the window, and praying for students as they walked by that God would touch the world through young people. Grace Church, what does your go look like? Let's pray. Father, we are so overwhelmed by your word. We are so overwhelmed how living and active it is that the pulse is still beating 2,000 years later. The church is still being grown in godliness by your grace. The church is still equipping one another to go. Father, encourage us to play our part in this story, to see our lives as part of something bigger than ourselves, to be drenched in your grace and your gospel, for it is the only truth that saves. And put that flame in our hearts, Lord, and lead us where you want us to go. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.